Again, welcome to all our William and Mary students who are coming back. Um, and all of you who are visiting, this summer we've been spending our summer in the book of Judges, um, looking at this book in the Old Testament and talking about one overall theme that week in and week out we've been trying to see that in the book of Judges we see that the greatness of God's grace is seen most clearly in the depths to which it reaches. Now those of you who are returning RUF students, this might sound a little familiar to you. We're glad to have you back for the end of the series. We're right near the end of this. Next week is actually going to be the end of our series on Judges. Uh, and we're in this week, in the second of, of two weeks, at the, at the very end of the book, talking about what life was like lived on the ground in the book of Judges during this time. Most of the book is about these stories of the deliverers that God raises up to rescue his people when they get in trouble. We've seen over the course of the summer that the quality of those deliverers um, sort of declines as the chapters go on. We see that uh, God's people find themselves sinking deeper and deeper, and even their leaders are sinking deeper and deeper with them. But these last few chapters are about what's life like for the average person in the middle of Israel at this time. So let's uh, give our attention now to the reading of the Word. This is Judges chapter 19. You'll find... um, in the pew in front, and underneath the pew in front of you, a pew Bible, if you need one. Uh, if so, we're on page 218 of the pew Bible in the book of Judges. We're going to be reading through chapter 20, verse 7. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. She went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah. And there was was there some four months. And her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. She brought him into her father's house. When the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. On the fifth day, he rose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. When the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day is waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall rise early in the morning and for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jabus, that is Jerusalem, and he had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jabus, the city was ne- the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. His master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel. We will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. They turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. 
And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. He lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going and where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah and I am going to the house of the Lord. But no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. The old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him to his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. And as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. They said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the master's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. When he entered the house, he took a knife. Taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead. And the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. And the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, Tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine, cut her in pieces, and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in the face of a very difficult text. Um, many of us come confused and outraged and frustrated. Many of us even come here today, this morning, very much questioning if you are even real and why they're here.
Many of us are um, worn down by the cares of our lives. Many of us are discouraged. Some of us are hopeful. Lord, we come before you um, in a variety of different states, but we know that you, God, are the one who ministers to all of us. We pray that you would do that for us now. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us. We pray that you would speak to us even out of this very dark passage of Scripture that we might know you better. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This passage is hard to even read out loud. For those of you uh, who are coming to visit, this is not the kind of passage that we read all the time at Grace Covenant. Um, But it is where the book of Judges brings us today. And as I said, over the course of the summer, we've been seeing how dark the situation has become and is becoming for the people of Israel. And this morning, in this text, we come to the very bottom of the well. We come all the way down to the bottom. And the question is going to be for us, does God's grace shine even here? So we're going to take a look um, this morning at, at two things. We're going, to, we're going to talk about what actually happens in this text, and then we're going to talk about what we ought to make out of this. So let's take a look first at what happens. This story unfolds for us in several different scenes. The background comes in verses 1, one and 2. Again, in verse 1, we heard this repeatedly in the passage last week, but it starts off with saying that there was no king in Israel. If you were here last week and know the previous chapters, you know that immediately sets us up to expect something bad and something dark. Last week we saw the Israelites falling further and further into idolatry. We saw this guy Micah erecting an idol by which he was hoping to worship God. We saw a Levite, a priest, traveling through the country looking for the best offer, um, looking to make himself prosperous. We saw a whole tribe of Israel, the people of Dan, um, taking advantage of a quiet, unsuspecting people, um, avenging their wrath on them, stealing their land. We saw all kinds of examples of people who were drifting badly from God in a world where there was no king. Uh, the story involves a concubine. Now, a concubine was a, was a female servant um, that a man could take to himself as sort of a secondary wife. She didn't really have any rights. She couldn't really go anywhere. Um, but she was um, kind of at his mercy and disposal. Uh, We see concubines several places in the Old Testament. It's never condoned. It's never never suggested as a good way to live your life, but we certainly see examples of it, and we see one here. Verse 2, it tells us the concubine was unfaithful to him, or if you're holding a copy of the Bible in front of you, there may be a text note down at the bottom. Uh, The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, says that she was um, that she became angry with him. Um, there's some textual questions here about what exactly happened, whether or not she just became fed up with him and left, or she actually did what this suggests that she was un- sexually unfaithful to him. But in any case, she leaves. She um, goes back to the home of her father, and four months go by. We don't know what happens in those four months. We don't know why this Levite finally decides that he wants to get his concubine again. So he travels to the home of her father to find her. And then we see in our second scene, verses 3 through 9. First thing we see is the the father-in-law coming out to joyfully receive his son-in-law. He's glad that he's shown up. It might be that the son-in-law, by coming, is sparing him the disgrace of having his daughter be cast out or have left. So this is going to be restored honor for him that the Levite comes back to get her. But in any case, he invites 
him into his home. He lavishes all this hospitality on him for days on end. He keeps trying to get him to stay longer to enjoy his hospitality. Um, but then on the fifth day, at the worst possible time of day, the Levite and decides to leave with his concubine at the very end of the day. This is not like traveling down I-64, uh, where there's a hotel on every corner and there's plenty of restaurants. You didn't start a journey at the end of the day. This was wild and dangerous territory. But he decides that he's bound and determined to set out now, so he does. As they're traveling, they come to the nearby city of Jabus, or what we now know as Jerusalem. And his servant says, let's go spend the night there. But he says, no, we're not going to spend the night there. Those people are not Israelites. We can't entrust ourselves to people who follow a different God. And the Levite sounds like surely this must be a, surely he must be right. The expectation is we have to go to our own people. So they pass by, and instead they come to Gibeah, which is an Israelite town, expecting that if anywhere, surely here, that we're going to find a, a welcome reception among God's people. Nobody takes them in when they go to the, the town square. This was, a, this was a culture that very much revolved around hospitality. When there was someone who showed up in your city who did not have a place to stay, you took them into your home. It was considered a social obligation that you extend hospitality even to strangers. Now, that's something that most of us are afraid to do. We'd be scared just to meet somebody on the side of the road and invite them in. But again, no hotels. This is how the world worked for them because they received hospitality like this when they themselves were travelers. So it's an incredible um, affront that even at this point in the story that no one in the city is inviting them in to be a guest in fact, the person who does invite him in is a guy who just happens to live there but is not from that town. He's an old man from the, the region of Ephraim, which is where this Levite came from. He invites this man back to his house. He says, whatever you do, don't spend the night in the square. Come home with me. They begin to um, enjoy their meal, and the men of the city come and bang on the door and demand that the old man send out the Levite so that, he, so that they can rape and abuse him. And it gets worse than that. The old man doesn't want to see that kind of inhospitality shown. So what does he do? He says, take my virgin daughter, take his concubine, do with them whatever you will, just don't do this to this man. Uh, verse 24 it says, violate them and do with them what seems good to you. The way that's translated obscures a little bit of um, a verbal parallel here with the Hebrew. More, more literally, it says, do with them what seems good in your own eyes. And we've seen a couple times in Judges that the narrator of Judges says the problem is that every man does what is right in his own eyes. And we see that at play right here. So what happens? The Levite takes his concubine and he throws her out to the wolves. And she's abused all night long. Now, if you are familiar with the Old Testament... Then, then this is going to remind you of another story. In Genesis chapter 19, Abraham, his nephew Lot, is living in um, the city of Sodom. And two visitors come to see them one day. And the same thing happens in the middle of the night. The people of Sodom, these Canaanites, these godless Canaanites, come and bang on the door and demand that he throw these men out to them that they might abuse them in a similar way. And at that point in Genesis, you think, this land really is wicked. But the irony is that in the book of Judges, it is God's people doing this very thing. They have become just as bad as the rest of the world around them. They have sunk just as low. They become as evil as the Canaanites ever were. Look at the, um, 
the picture that the narrator continues to paint for us. Verse 26. She's released as morning breaks. She falls down at the door of the house. She's unable to even knock or get in. Um, Then look at the term the narrator uses here for the Levite. We've seen the Levite referred to variously in the passage as her husband, as this woman's father's son-in-law, but now for the first time it refers to the Levite as her master. And what happens? Her master opens the door in the morning, ready to go out on his journey, and he seems surprised to see the state in which he finds his concubine. And he barks at her, get up, let's go, it's time for us to be going. She's dead, he puts her on his horse, takes her home, verses 29 through 30, It does something we can't even imagine. He uh, takes a knife and he divides her into 12 pieces and sends one to every tribe in Israel to say there's an outrage that's been committed here and we have to do something about it. The whole country, as you might imagine, is horrified. They gather in this council in verse 20 to decide what to do. And if you go on to read the next few chapters, you'll find that this sends Israel into a civil war. And the tribe of Benjamin, the, uh, the people who live in Gibeah, they are almost entirely exterminated. Um, This brings a division that almost brings the nation just crumbling to its knees. Okay, so that's what happens. The question for us is, um, what do we make of it? It brings up all kinds of questions. How could the Levite do this? How could this be in the Bible? Why didn't God save her or send somebody that would? How can the Bible be this callous? How can the Bible be this blatantly patriarchal? Doesn't it show us the Bible really is, after all, against women and their rights? A lot of questions we could ask. We're going, to look at, we're going to look at three questions this morning, just as we reflect a little bit on this text. The first one is this. What does this story tell us about ourselves? We read the story and we're naturally horrified. And that's the right response. The story is often used by some people. They point to this and say, see, the Bible really does trample all over the rights of women. It really does condone this sort of patriarchy that oppresses. It really is filled with violence and outrage. But I think sometimes those accusations are based on a misunderstanding of the text. The Bible relates a lot of things that it never endorses. Now, the narrator never says, and this is really terrible, and this never should have happened. Uh, C.S. Lewis exchanged letters with a young writer, and to, um, to this writer he said this, don't say it was delightful, make us say delightful when we read the description. You see, all those words, horrifying, wonderful, hideous, exquisite, are only like saying to your readers, please will you do the job for me? Or to the narrator of Judges he might say, don't tell us that it was horrible and wrong, show it to us and make us feel it. And that's exactly what the narrator does. The narrator wants you, he expects you, to be horrified and outraged by what you read. So that's a right reaction. But I'm struck by the fact that the the story confronts us as well. This is an extreme story. I haven't seen one of these for a while. Maybe there's a lull in the advertising world. But you you remember the ads for laundry detergent, okay? They want you to buy all instead of tides. What do they do? They, they, they bring in, you know, they show a scene of your little girl wearing her white dress at Easter, and she goes to the church picnic afterwards and eats the chili dog and dumps that and the mustard and the ketchup all, all over her dress. 
And the mother goes home and she says, no problem, we have all. So she tosses it into the washing machine and out it comes and it's perfectly clean. Or, you know, the picture of the stereotypical guy who's coming in uh, after mowing the lawn and somehow he went out clean, but it seems like he sort of wrestled the lawnmower and he's got axle grease rubbed in his shirt and grass stains everywhere. No problem, we have the right detergent, we throw it in and it cleans it out. Now, there's a punch and a power to ads like that that are different than, um, you know, you come home from a long day of pushing paper at the office and you throw your clothes into the, into the washing machine and it gets them really clean, right? What do they want to do? They want to portray the most extreme situation you can imagine. And what are they saying? The detergent takes care of even this. Anything you can throw at it can be cleaned by this. And in one way, that's, the story functions this way for us. That God really can address the most extreme and the darkest situations of our lives. Now, but in another way, we're going to come back to that idea, but in another way, maybe the story is not so extreme after all. Um, in Luke 7, Jesus is interacting with this woman who's referred to as the sinful woman who comes to him crying and um, is forgiven by him. And he makes the comment to this hardened religious leader. He says, see this woman? He says, those who have been forgiven much love much. But he says, those who have been forgiven little love little. Now Jesus' point was not, some people are really in need of forgiveness and some people are only in little in need of forgiveness. But his point was that those who realize how desperate their straits are realize even more how amazing God's grace is that reaches them in the middle of that. So on the surface, I think we look at the story. How could this ever happen? How could someone ever do anything like that? But I wonder if that's a close enough look at our own hearts. Um, heard second, third hand this week, a, a quote by Tim Keller, a PCA pastor. And he said this, you might not be Ivan the Terrible, but it's not for lack of talent. <laughs> you know, we, we laugh at that and, and maybe laugh at that uneasily. The problem that we so often fall into, and I'm not suggesting that given the situation, we would have all acted exactly like this Levite would have. But I am certainly suggesting the darkness that was in this man's heart and the darkness that was in the hearts of the people of Gibeah is a darkness that invades all of us. The problem for a lot of us, myself included many days, is that we don't really think we're that bad. I mean, sometimes we're a little dis honest, and sometimes we snap a little bit at our family, and sometimes we're a little unfaithful to our God, but we're not, we're not, real, we're not really this bad. We're not really this desperately in need of, a, of rescue, not this desperately in need of a Savior. I think the problem with this is that the degree to which we refuse to see who we really are is the degree that we're going to be unable to see who Christ is for us. The degree that you're unable to look at the hardness and the darkness of your own heart is going to be the limit to which you're able to see the goodness and mercy and grace of Jesus at work in your life. Okay, so first question, what does the story tell about ourselves? Second question, what does the story tell us about the Bible? This, the Bible doesn't paint some sort of fairy tale picture of what our world is like. It doesn't brush over all the hardness and the injustice and the evil it actually addresses the real world that we live in, in all its brightness and beauty, and all its darkness, and all its depravity as well. And you sort of get this gut feeling as you're listening to this story that we just shouldn't be reading this story in church. 
that that's somehow inappropriate. That somehow the Bible doesn't really speak to the way our world really is, to the real realities of our world. A number of years ago, before I came to Virginia, I was working with students in a college ministry, and many times I remember praying at the beginning of one of our large group meetings something like this. Lord, you know that we have a lot going on this week, that there's a lot of even hard things in our life, and I pray that you would help us to just put those things aside so that we can worship you. And that seemed like a good prayer to me at the time, and it seems like a very bad prayer to me right now, because it's giving the message that we have to put all of that stuff aside, our real life aside, in order to come together here on Sunday morning and worship this God, in order to come to him by yourself and pray, as if God can't really handle the life that we're living, as if he can't really handle the darkness and hard parts of our world. And the truth is, he's in the middle of it with us. Our world really is this dark. Look at the newspapers. Past two weeks, there have been prominent stories about murders even in that. And it's not just that. Look at our entertainment. I'm struck every time I hear commercials. How many of our shows on TV are crime shows that take us to the very deepest depths of the darkness of the human heart? We're shocked to find this in the Bible, but we're surrounded by this everywhere else around us. Now, I'm going to suggest maybe that, um, that only Christianity really has the resources to wrestle with a story like this. Some of us feel like um, we can't look at our questions honestly. Some of us feel like, those of us who say that we're following Jesus, some of us feel like my faith is maybe a little bit more like this, this house of cards that I've constructed. And I'm scared if anybody blows on it too hard or anybody shakes the table that it's all going to be crumbling down. I'm scared that I can't come and ask the real questions. Um, some of you who are William and Mary students, some of you guys are just beginning to be William and Mary students, you're going to face questions like this over the next four years in your time in college. How could you believe that? It's ridiculous. How can you really put your faith in something like Jesus? How can you really rest on that as an answer um, to what life is all about? But if that's the way you're looking at your faith, or if you're someone who is looking at Christianity, and that's the criticism you bring, let me just ask you this. How do you explain both the great darkness in our world and the great darkness in our own hearts, and at the same time the presence of so much great good? How do those two things coexist together? Um, for some of us, how do you explain the presence of evil in the world? If you feel like, deep down, we're basically just pretty good people, why is it that things have run so amok? Why is it that your own life so often goes so badly off the rails? Why is it so hard to act right if deep down we're really all good? There was a, um, I mentioned last week when we were talking about confession, um, this website where you could go and anonymously confess your sins. A friend of mine told me about another similar website that was actually for, I think it was a British soap company. And you get on their website and they're a picture of these two hands. And you can type onto the hands whatever it is that you want to confess. And then you hit the button, and the hands grab a little of this brand of soap, and, they, and the hands wash, and they come back out, and there's, there's nothing on it. And it's just gone. My friend told me that there was a little blurb at the bottom of the webpage, and they said, over the, over the months that we've had this website up, 
Hundreds and hundreds of people have written on here and confessed to, to being liars, to lying. And, he, and it said also, uh, there have been 15 people who have confessed to adultery. And there have been three people who have confessed to murder. And the website went on to say, but we're sure those last two categories are jokes. Really? If we think that we're basically good, then we don't know what to do with the reality of evil in our life. All we can say is it must be a joke, not there are people out there with that kind of story on their hands. Maybe you think we live in a godless universe and that's just the way things are. Of course there's evil in the world. Well, if that's true, then how do we at the same time explain the presence of such great good and such great beauty in our world? If there's a world with no, with no God, if things just tend towards spiraling downwards, why is it why is it that that strikes us as being so very wrong? If there's no God, why are you personally offended when you're cut off in traffic? Why are you outraged when somebody steals something of yours? Why does it send you so off balance when you're offended by somebody else? If there's really no right and wrong, if there's really no standard, if there's really no presence of justice in the world, why would those things even grab our hearts so badly? And if that's the case you find yourself in, then we have no answers to our story of why are we so outraged by what happens to this concubine. Scripture, though, gives us a different story. It gives us the story of mankind created in God's image, fallen, going badly wrong, turning its back on God, and God faithfully pursuing people and bringing them from death to life. It gives us answers for the fact that there's both great good in the world. It was created to be that way. There's great evil in the world because it's turned its back on him. But it's a Christian story. It's the only one that I think really gives a real response to what are we going to do with that? And the answer it gives is that we have a God who does not let us go our own way, who comes chasing after us. And it brings us to our last question in the text. What does this story tell us about God? Again, if you go on and read the rest of the story, you're going to find that some external justice really does happen. The people of Benjamin um, are punished. They're almost exterminated for this. Now, it almost wrecks the entire nation. Lots and lots of people die in response to this. There's some sense of justice, but it doesn't go nearly far enough. And even the people who are bringing justice on the offending party are so shot with fault and sin of their own, it uh, continues to be a depressing story over the next couple chapters. See, by the end of the story, everybody is indicted. The Levite, the Gibeonites, the Benjaminites, all of Israel. What does the story about, tell us about God? Well, we do see that God does not give up on these people. We've seen that every week in the book of Judges. As people sink so far, God doesn't turn his back. And he doesn't turn his back again. When these people sink to the very bottom of the well, God continues to reach out to them in mercy. Now, what does this story tell us about God? Well, ultimately, we have to look beyond just what we see on the pages of this story. How does God respond in the face of great injustice to the kind of thing that happens to this concubine? The best answer he gives us is in the person of his son, Jesus. God doesn't understand injustice, really. 
his own son laying aside his power and his glory that he might walk this earth with us, that he might take on the frailty of our flesh, and that he might suffer unjustly at the hands of people who were out to murder him. Isn't it interesting that we read the story about this woman and we're outraged by the injustice and the abuse? Most of us are so familiar with the story of Jesus that we don't respond the same way. Someone who utterly did not deserve what was given him. Someone who had the power to stop it all and didn't. Who took it on in spite of the injustice. Jesus lays aside his majesty, his glory. He's killed, he's abused for us. I think when it, at the end of the day, that this is maybe the most complete answer that the Bible gives us in the face of injustice like this. It doesn't give us answers. Why did this happen to the concubine? Why did the people of Gibeah do this? But it does offer us a Savior who took on the injustice of the world himself. And we can never say that God doesn't understand what we're going through, that he doesn't understand the weight and pain of the world. We can never say that he's not powerful enough to address it. Because rather than simply wiping out the offenders, what does he do instead? He takes the long-range rescue operation of not annihilating all, any of us, but of continuing to extend his mercy and grace to us by which we take our every breath. And he offers us the hope of real restored relationship in Jesus. If you're somebody who's fallen in Jesus, that is what he did for you. He came all the way to the bottom of the well and rescued even you. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, this is a disturbing story. But you are a gracious and great God who does not leave, in, who does not leave us in the midst of our misery and our alienation. You reach out to us in Jesus. Father, we thank you that you took on injustice and suffering on our behalf. Father, we pray that the glory of Christ would shine brightly in our eyes. I ask for those of us who are undergoing significant suffering right now, may you be very sweet to us. Remind us that you stand here in the middle of life with us and that our hope is in the death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf and that one day you, in fact, are going to complete your work of putting everything to rights. Lord, we long for that day. May we be people of hope. May we be people who act redemptively in the world around us as we paint a picture of your goodness and justice and mercy to our world. And we pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, sing our closing hymn.